I hope you have a Bible with you this morning, and I want you to take it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I hope you came in, but if for whatever reason you came in and you don't have one, there's always some back on the rack. I would encourage you to have a Bible in front of you. For the next uh, hour, hour and a half, we're going to be looking from this book known as the Bible. And so I encourage you to have a Bible with you, Exodus chapter 20. Also, when you come in, in one of these bulletins or in both places when you come in, there's some notes on the back of that bulletin that I would encourage you to avail yourself of if you want to take some notes as we walk through the Word of God together. It was just this past week, if you pay attention, that the Republican National Convention was being held. The culmination, the final night of the convention, they were having a big rally, having a big get-together, if you will, there at the White House. There was a lot of people that were speaking. Of course, the, the president accepted the nomination for the next term. He gave his speech. All that was going on. I am not trying to be political. What I do want to point out to you is, after the event was over, and you had two opposing sides were gathered. On one side, the political party of the Republicans. On the other side, the political party of the Democrats. And as they were ending their night's festivity, if you were watching the news, there were a throng of protesters. And these weren't just protesters saying, we don't agree. They became violent. And they became thuggish. And they became oppressive. And they started heckling to the point of being physically violent against the other party that was there. Now there used to be a time and a day when two groups could get together that had disagreements but they still had a certain amount of respect and honor for the other side. There used to be a time when two people could come together disagree over something and not go to bloody blows. But we are living in a day and age that when you see two opposing sides we are seeing increasingly not just in Washington D.C. this past week but in Kenosha and Minneapolis and Portland and other places throughout the United States where this opposition is boiling up and it moves past this respectful type of dialogue to now a violent form of tyranny. And increasingly, whether we understand it or not, we are seeing the demise of respect and honor in our culture. We are seeing the demise of consideration and tolerance and mutual respect for someone else. And we have been in this passage known as the Ten Commandments historically, but we have been coming to them in the sense of that God is giving us a list of foundational truths. He's giving us a a list of foundations for if we are to build our home, if we are to build our personal lives, if we are to build the life and the practice and the faith of the church, these should be the foundational pillars by which we build our faith and our practice on. And so we've been looking at these and up to this point we've looked at the first four and this morning we are here on the fifth commandment, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. And this deals with not just respect and honor when it comes to the father and the mother, but I want you to see with me this morning that this covers a wider path than just the fathers and the mothers. This talks to the respect and the honor that we have in the world today. And if you see there in your bulletin in the top of your notes, just kind of one big thought that I'm going to be trying to come back to during our time together this morning. And this is the thought. The demise of honor and respect in our world today is not a social problem, but a spiritual problem. The demise of respect and honor in the world today is not a social problem, but a spiritual problem. 
You see, I think the reason why we see such division, I think the reason why we see such a schism, I think the reason why we see such disunity and such anarchy in the world today is not because of a political figure, not because of an ideology, but because you have people that are driven by the flesh, people that are driven by their fears, people that are driven by their selfishness, and they're not driven by the Spirit of God. So how do we regain that? We look back to the foundations that God has given us. So I want to point you to, here we're going to look at just one verse, verse 12 here in Exodus chapter 20. But I want to point to you three different ways that we can come to this passage. Let me read the passage for you as you read it along with me out of your translation. It says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you simple commandment, a fifth commandment, a commandment a lot of times you will hear people, hear people say, well you're supposed to honor your father and your mother. We're going to hear shortly look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 talking about the same sort of thing, but some people come to that and say, oh well that's great but now that I'm an adult, I get to check out. Or now that I'm a grandparent, I get to check out. Or because I don't have any kids, I get to check out. But I think this is a passage that God meant to every single one of us in this room this morning. So let me give it to you. Let me show you these three different ways that we can come at this passage this morning. The first one, the first one is the personal expectation. The personal expectation. Notice there as the passage begins, verse 12, God says, honor. He doesn't have to explain to them what honor is. He doesn't have to explain to them what honor was. He doesn't have to explain to them how it is that they honor. He already knew that they knew what it was to honor. Now I put there a definition of honor there in your notes. Honor is the same thing as respecting something or having a high esteem or deference or a distinction or merit. It's this idea that God knew that these Jewish people, God knew that you and I, we don't have to be explained to what it means to honor because we all honor something or someone. Every single one of us honors something or someone. My family for years now has worked the concession stand at the Wellston Fair and my dad always finds the worst shift and that's the one he takes because that's the one that no one else wants and then he calls all of his children to say you need to come help me now. And so the same thing happened because now I've moved back and so well Spence you've been on the bench for 10 years so now you need to come pull double duty and so of course my father contacts me and says I need help in the concession stand. I don't. No, dad says, I need a couple of concessions. Then. Dad, I'm not hungry. I don't need anything. Dad, I'm not going to make anything off of it. Dad, the school system, I'm not obligated. But I'm there last night, not because I was bored. <laughs> not because I didn't have anything else to do. Not because I was doing community service for some type of a, a, a jail sentence. And not because somebody was paying me. Out of honor. Out of honor for your parents. Out of honor for the system that has given me so much. Out of honor to a community that has invested and instilled in me and therefore I get a chance to return the favor and return the investment. We all honor something or someone. And so God comes in this passage and he says honor. He wants to make sure that everybody knows that it's not the fact of if they are going to honor but it's what you are going to honor. And he says honor your father and your mother. He is telling them that they're should be a focus of their honor. Now notice he doesn't say this is all you honor. This is the only thing that you honor. Or you only honor them as long as you are a child. He says honor 
your father and your mother. Because he knows that what they do with their honor and what they do with their heart shows the relationship and their dedication to God. See, if you're not going to honor God, you're not going to honor your neighbor. If you're not going to honor your neighbor, you're not going to honor God. You can't tell me that you are doing everything, loving God, being faithful to God, but you're not being faithful to the church. You're not being faithful to your neighbor. You're not loving others like God loves you. This idea that he says is this picture that we are going to show our devotion, our commitment to God in the way that we treat the people around us. And he understands the need for them to honor their parents. He understands the need for that family structure. He understands the need for that framework to be in place because he understood that God designed the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, the father and the mother and the children. And he designed this so that children might be brought into the world, raised in a Christian home to serve the kingdom of God. So he says, honor your father and your mother. And why does he say it so explicitly? Because he knows that honor begins in your heart. The honor really begins in your heart. If you don't care, you can just go through the lip service. If you don't care, you can just go through the action. But the way that you truly show honor, whether it's to God or whether it's to your parents or the people around you, it begins in the heart. And so he gives us this personal expectation. And he says, for every single person in the room, honor your father and your mother. We had this discussion just this last Wednesday because there are some individuals now, individuals whose parents have made some really poor decisions. And they haven't treated their children the way they should have treated their children. And the question came up, well, Spence, am I still supposed to have that same treatment for them even though they've done this or haven't done this to me? And how sad it is that we live in a society that that question comes up. How sad it is that we live in a time and age in which we have people in that position doing that to people how sad it is that we have to talk about that but here's what I told the individual you can still show honor and respect without condoning or agreeing with their actions you can still show honor and respect not because they're a good person or not because they have treated you well but because of the position that God has placed them in in your life you can still show them honor and respect without having to follow their path and so there's this personal expectation that God gives us he tells us we are to honor our father and our mother so every single person in this room right now has a father and a mother and every single one of us has been called to honor those that God has put into our lives for guidance and for direction. So there's a personal expectation, but I also notice there's a parental a personal expectation and a parental exhortation. He says, honor your father and your mother. So you can just imagine if I have Ezra, which is our little two-year-old, and I bring Ezra up and I look at him and I say, alright son, here's the deal. You're to honor your father and your mother. Can you just imagine what that two-year-old is going to look at me? The two-year-old is going to say, I don't understand. I don't get it. And I don't know how to do that. And I'm just going to go off doing my own thing. This is where I think that we need to understand that so many times we will pull this verse. We will take this passage and say, all right, child, you're not doing this and you're supposed to be doing that. But we fail to understand that discipline, direction, and devotion are taught. 
They're not just automatic. They're not just by default. We want our children to show respect and honor for the community and the culture in which we live. They have to be taught it. And the problem that we have right now is we have so many parents that just assume our kids are supposed to get that at school. We assume that our our children are supposed to get that from Spongebob or Dora the Explorer or Bob the Builder. We assume that they're going to get it through osmosis and the culture around us. And yet we wonder why have we lost so much respect? Why have we lost so much honor in the world in which we live? It's because it's not being taught in the home. You may call me a little bit of conspiracy theorist, but I have this little idea that you go back to the 1940s and when all the the greatest generation, all that group of men, when they all left to go to war, they left a vacuum. They left a vacuum of male leadership within the home. And so you have this entire generation that was sitting there going, what do we do? We're not used to this idea of a single parent family. We're not used to the idea of a single family home. And so then these men come back from war and you had the 50s and you had the the baby boomers being born and this population explosion. And yet there was such a dynamic that had been fractured, a dynamic that had been altered because this family dynamic was now altered in such a way that you see the next generation coming up in the 60s and 70s and they have this idea. They've gone from what do we do now to we can do whatever we want to do because they were raised in this idea that... They get to decide and they should have a certain amount of freedom and they should be able to break off those chains of expectations and tradition. And so the 60s and 70s come and they break off those chains and then comes the 80s and the 90s. And you've gone from that generation that says, hey, I get to do what I want to do. This and this generation comes and then says, you do what you want to do. And so we have a whole slew of people that are come up and parents are worshiping their children. Parents are allowing their children. The parents is looking at Johnny and saying, Johnny, where would you like to go eat? Because you decide what we're going to do. And then they get to the table and they say, all right, little Sally, what would you like to have? Uh, what would you like to have? And where would you want to go? And they're being led by the children because they put the children, prop them up as the children are the common denominators and the main denominators in the family. And then you come now to this generation we're looking at today. And they've gone from living in a household saying, what do we do? And then leaving in a household that said, I get to do what I want to do. And then going to the household and said, well, you get to do and I'll do whatever you do. And now we're living in a generation that comes and says, you do what I do. And if not, I will oppose you not just by mouth, but by action. Have you seen these videos? Have you seen these videos of these individuals are sitting at a restaurant, at an outdoor restaurant, because now we're under the coronavirus and we have to have the social distancing? So you have individuals and they're sitting outside at a restaurant minding their own business and these activists, these protesters, this opposing group of people come up and demand that they act or speak in a certain way or they will harass them and they will threaten them and they will assault them with vulgarity and all kinds of insults. Have you seen this? God tells us there's a parental exhortation that the respect and the honor starts in the home. This respect and honor starts in the home because parents, we are responsible for teaching our children what it looks like to have respect and honor. And in this command, I I don't know, I think I put a typo there in your notes, but this command is not age specific. He is looking at the, he's looking at the entire nation of Israel and he says, honor your father and your mother. He's not saying it's just for the children. He's not saying it's just for the teenagers. He's not saying it's just for the young adults. He's not just saying it's for the adults or the older adults or the senior adults. He is saying, everybody, do you not understand this idea and respect and honor is not just something that happens when they're zero to five years old, but it's something that we do forever. And there's an exhortation to parents. We have to be teaching this in our homes. 
It's an exhortation to the church. We must be teaching this in the church. We must be teaching our young people how to have respect. And how do we teach them is that we demonstrate before them what it looks like to have respect and honor and deference for the people around us. Listen to what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk with them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. There is an expectation that Moses was giving the people that they were going to saturate their homes. They were going to saturate their lifestyles. They were going to saturate everything around them. So these children grew up knowing more about the things of God than they do about the things of Xbox. They knew more about the things of God than they do about the things of Netflix. That they knew more about the things of God than they did about the things of sports. There was this expectation that he said, I want to give an exhortation to the parents because he understood it's not just the parents, it's the adults. We are all coming together to teach this next generation how to honor your father and your mother. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse, uh, I'm starting verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents. And boy, we come in here and we pull that out and go, ha, ha, in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment of the promise that it may go well with you and that may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then he goes on in verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Boy, I have that, I've had that thrown in my face before. Daddy, you're not supposed to make me mad. <laughs> well, son, you need to read the rest of the verse. But, but, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, Father, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility isn't to leave them a big old fat inheritance. Our responsibility isn't so they'd be some sports stud and known throughout the town. Our responsibility is not to make them happy. Our responsibility is not to keep them on a friendly basis. My responsibility is not to be my boys' best friend. My responsibility is to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And God gives us all the way back in Exodus 20. He gives us this parental exhortation and saying, Listen, this is my will for people to have respect and honor, especially the children having respect and honor for their parents. But unfortunately, we live in a day and age when these parents think that It's not their job. Let's look at a history lesson. And I'm going to read quite of this instead of trying to quote it from memory. It says, By the time Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933, hundreds of thousands of kids were members of youth organizations like the Boy Scouts, which was invented in England in 1909 and quickly spread to Germany. But there was also another powerful youth movement afoot, one invented by the Nazis. And since 1922, the National Socialist had a youth arm designed to train and recruit members for its paramilitary. As the Nazis became more powerful, their youth arm grew. To the point that in 1933, there were 50,000 members of the Hitler Youth. 
But it got worse than that because by the end of the year in 1933, there were considered to be more than 2 million members of the Hitler Youth. And as of the 1930s progressed, the Nazis waged war on the groups so popular among the German youth. They banned the other children's groups associated with the opposition. They banned Boy Scouts and they forced all the German citizens, if they were going to be part of any kind of an organization, both girls and boys, they were forced to join the Hitler Youth. In fact, there was a message that was being sent. Either you obey or you are punished. They would ostracize them. They would uh, heckle them. They would kick them out to the point that by 1939, over 90% of the Jewish children were part of the Hitler Youth Organization. Who cares, Spence? Listen to this. For the Nazis, the group had other benefits. Not only did it allow the Third Reich to indoctrinate children at their most impressionable season of life, but it let the Nazis remove the influence of their parents, some of who opposed the regime. The Nazi party knew that families, private, cohesive groups, not under political sway, were an obstacle to their goals. The Hitler Youth was a way to get the Hitler's ideology into the family unit, and some of the members of the Hitler Youth even denounced their parents, and when they behaved in ways not approved by the leadership. It says in 1943, all 17-year-old males and older that were part of the Hitler Youth were automatically brought into military service. Then, in 1945, as the numbers were dwindling, they start going into the school systems and recruiting as boys and taking boys as early as young as 14 years old and bringing them into military service. And the whole idea was they were going to raise up an entire generation committed to Nazism, committed to an ideology, committed to a way of life. And you and I can sit back and say, well, that's not going to happen here in Wellston. It happened in one generation. Why? Because... Because the church did not rise up. Because the parents did not rise up. And because the opposition that was opposed to the things of God and they were opposed to the faithfulness of God's word and they were opposed to the church were allowed to run rampant. Brothers and sisters, I am not trying to be political this morning, but I do think it is time for us to wake up and to realize we are not in a benign situation. We are not in an innocent culture. We are facing a dilemma in the days in which we live that will mark be a watershed moment for where we move as a future. And if we remain to say, well, it's not my responsibility, it's not my job, then we will set the next generation up for failure. Because this generation is the product of the last generation. So it comes in line with what Adrian Rogers says. He says, you reap before you sow, you reap after you sow, and you reap more than you sow. So the seeds that we are planting today will be the seeds that we will reap tomorrow. So there's a parental exhortation that God gives us. He wants to make sure that he understands that in order for these young people to honor their mother and father, to honor and respect the people around them, it has to begin in the home and it has to be taught. But then comes this third one, and that's the promised explanation. You get the promised explanation because this is the first time that God gives a promise. He gives a result. He gives them this is what is going to happen if you do what I tell you to do. Verse 12. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
listened to Mac Brunson, a pastor that I listened to out of Birmingham, Alabama this last week, and he was finishing his study of Job. And at the end of Job, it tells us that Job died being full of days. And he brought out that this idea that it wasn't the length of days, but the quality of days. And it's the same thought that's being brought out here when he says, your days may be long in the land. Not only is he talking about that you'll have lots of days, lots of years of life, but the quality of your life and the fullness of your life will be there when you're following God's plan and purpose for your life. Why? Because God's plans produce peace. God's plans produce peace. I'm not saying happiness. I'm not saying joy. I'm not saying comfort. I am not saying ease. What I'm saying is, is when we follow God's plan for our lives, we have peace with one another. How do I know that? Because when we have the Holy Spirit unifying us, this Holy Spirit is amongst us, it unifies us, gives us unity of heart and mind, and there is no conflict when it comes to the triune God. So we have peace when we're following God's plans. But then if we follow man's plans, it only produces conflict. He brings out the plans that we have today and things that people are doing. There's conflict everywhere. And I'm not going to try to tell you which side to be on. I can just tell you to read your Bible and you'll know where you need to be at. You'll know where you need to stand. You'll know what you need to do because you understand that as long as we continue following man's plans we'll always be embroiled in conflict. Always be embroiled in conflict. So God comes in and says, this is why I want you to follow my foundation, my commands, my prescription for your life because I'm going to bless what I direct. And yet, so often we think in our daily lives that we can go off and do our own thing. And God has to bless what we direct. Where do we get this idea that God has to condone and bless what I direct? God has made it very clear in His Word the way I'm to live. He's made it very clear in His Word the way I'm to behave. He's made it very clear in His Word what He expects from me and what obedience looks like for me. But the question is, is how in the world do I think that I could go against God's Word, that I can go ahead and jettison everything that God tells me to do, and yet God has to make me happy. Over and over again, we see through the Bible that God says, this is what I want you to do. And when you follow the command and the plan that I have for your life, there will be peace. There will be blessings because I am the one giving you the direction. So maybe we are in this day and age when we see respect and honor and maybe an all-time low in at least my lifetime. When we say, well, what are we supposed to do about it, Spence? What in the world are we supposed to do? How do we go about regaining some of this respect and honor in our culture? How do we begin to instill it back into the life of the church? So I put in your notes three questions. Three questions to examine the foundation because a lot of times we come in and we say, okay, so what am I supposed to do about it? Spence, you're telling me this is God's word. Spence, you're telling me this is God's plan. Spence, you're telling me this is what I'm supposed to do. So Spence, what are we supposed to do about it? Well, I think the reflection, I think the question first starts with you. First starts with me. The question starts with us personally. And here is the first question. Whom, whom am I honoring today. Whom am I honoring today? See, it's not right for me to look at Eli, Wyatt, Luke, or Ezra, or maybe Silas, maybe, we're still deciding, but to look at those children and to say, I'm close, uh, to look at them and say, you are to honor God if they don't see me honoring God. 
You see, that's called hypocrisy. And that's one of the things we talked about last Wednesday night with the youth was what it means to be a hypocrite and what the dangers of being a hypocrite and the sin of being a hypocrite and this idea that so many times you have adults, they come into church, they put on a face, they put on a front, and then they go home and they're looking at their children saying, you need to honor God. And the children are looking back going, but you're not. And how can we expect a generation to show the civility and to show the humility and to show the tolerance and to show the attitude of love to one another if the parents aren't doing it? So brothers, sisters, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, who am I honoring today? Am I honoring Titleist? Am I honoring Abu Garcia? Am I honoring Dak Prescott? Am I honoring... Massey Ferguson? Am I honoring Mr. Ford? Am I honoring DirecTV? Am I honoring my recliner? What is it that I am honoring today? Which comes to the second question. Second question. What am I teaching the next generation? What am I teaching the next generation? generation because you have a certain number of people all around you and whether you're an adult whether you're a grandparent whether you're aunt and uncle maybe you're just here this morning and you're saying I don't have any kids with me so it really doesn't matter I can tell you these kids are watching you these kids are watching you and they're looking for an example they're looking for a witness they're looking for someone to say show me what I'm supposed to do and they're constantly watching and they're constantly looking and the question is is what are you teaching the next generation are you teaching them what it looks like to be faithful to God? What it looks like to honor God? What it looks like to serve God? What it looks like to follow after God? Are you teaching them and showing them what it looks like to worship God? Or are you teaching them what it looks like to be bored and go to sleep? We don't get excited. We definitely don't smile. Just here. We'll spend days and months and invite 20 people over to our house for the Super Bowl, and then we'll get so excited in the living room that people will wonder if we're actually okay, and we'll get excited over a football game. But we won't have any kind of a compassion or emotion when it comes to the worship of God. We won't show anything, we'll just sit there. How great is our God! How great is our God! How dare us be so flippant with our worship of God? Because if you're saved this morning, in 10,000 years, you're not going to be sitting there going, How great is our God? How great is our God? You have a completely different tune. So, what am I teaching the next generation? Then here's the last one Whose promises am I living for? We think as a church, we think as a family unit, we think as a community, we think as a society, how it is that we help instill in the next generation, how it is how it is that we teach this generation to recover this idea of respect and honor to the people around us. We think about how it is that we come in and begin to plant the seeds to recover this movement back 
to God, the question we need to ask ourselves is whose promises am I living for? Because the world outside here says, here, if you do this and you do that, you'll feel better, you'll think better, you'll be on a better course. Right now, we're in the midst of all of this political garbage, and you have this side saying, well, if you vote for us, everything's going to get better. And then you have this side over here saying, well, if you vote for us, everything's going to get better. And I'm going to tell you, there's not a single one of them that are being biblical to the core. And you have to ask the question, well, what am I going to do? This person promises everything. This person promises everything. And what am I supposed to do? I'm going to tell you, you need to understand that we're not living for either promises. We're living for this promise. And this promise that comes in and says, you follow me. You don't follow the world. You don't identify the world. You identify with Christ. You don't worry about what everybody's doing outside these walls. You make sure that you're being faithful to me. Yes, you have a responsibility in the culture in which you live. Yes, you have a responsibility for a witness in your life. But people should know you, not because of your party affiliation, but because of your heavenly affiliation. That's what people should know us as. That's the promise that we should hold to. And instead of sitting back and trying to say, well, I'm going to tell you this, or I'm going to debate you on this, we should just simply say, I'm living for the promises of God. Because God tells me when I follow Him that He will give me direction and guidance in my path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. You rely upon God. Well, what am I supposed to do with my children? Because society says I should have them in this activity. And the world says I should do this with them. And if I don't do this, I'm a failure. And if I don't do this, people will think negative of me. What does the Bible tell us to do? Train your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Which means you might need to take a Saturday off to teach your kids how to read the Bible. Which might mean you need to turn the television off so you can pray with your family. Which might mean that you need to keep thinking about ourselves and start thinking about the generation that is coming after us. Which might mean we might need to take the opportunity to show our church and our families what it looks like to follow after God. So how is your foundation this morning? Whom are you honoring today? What are you teaching the next generation? And whose promises are you living for? Would you bow your heads with me?